Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dion. Today, I'm joined by Jordy Bruin. Jordy, thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited to have you on finally. Yeah, no, uh, happy to be here. Um, we had some time zone issues this morning, but I'm glad we managed to get, get it to work today. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It would have been a very early morning for me, so I'm glad it worked out. Yeah, I don't know how many 2 a.m. recordings you do, but uh, this is probably better for both of us. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think the rest of the family would would really appreciate <laughs> podcast recording at two a.m. Maybe, maybe the littlest guy because he's always up in the middle of the night. But oh yeah, <laughs> I'll let you introduce yourself. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Jordi Bruin. I'm um, an indie developer from Amsterdam in the Netherlands. I started developments like developing about four or five years ago. I used to be a designer at an agency, taught myself to program, and since. About one and a half years now, I've been full indie on my own apps. Did some freelance stuff before, but um, yeah, I much prefer working on my own things. So uh, I have about, I think I launched about 20 apps in the last two, three years, uh, ranging from iOS to macOS, uh, watchOS, and anything in between. People might know me from an app I make called Vivid that raises the brightness of your MacBook to uh, like doubles the brightness. Um, I was nominated for an Apple Design Award this year for Navi, which adds subtitles and live translation to FaceTime. And right now I'm also working on PosturePel, which uh, uses the motion sensors in your AirPods to help you improve your posture. So um, yeah, there's I just try to work with new technologies and make stuff I like. Is is Navi, is that like a Zelda reference or something? Yeah, it was, yeah. So, so I actually had to remove it from sale this 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 two weeks ago because it doesn't work on iOS 16 anymore, but it was a little Navi Aww. thing, a little Zelda. Hey, listen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one thing I wanted to bring up before we jump into the main topic, and we've talked about this on a few episodes when we, we did Mac stuff with Matt and Sarah, you sell your apps on Gumroad. Yes, yeah. How do you like that? And what what made you pick Gumroad for selling apps? Because isn't it usually more like books and stuff? Yeah, so Gumroad is basically a website where people can sell digital stuff. I think they can also sell okay. physical stuff, but digital stuff I think is mostly used there. I had I had used it last year when I was selling um, talk I gave, and then I started putting like small Mac apps up on there. And it was Mac, were Mac apps that were using private APIs, so they wouldn't be allowed on the Mac App Store. And it's been working pretty well so far. You pay a less commission, which, I mean, the difference between Apple's and, and Gumroad's not that big, but it's actually quite nice. You get this direct um, connection with your customers, so I can email them if there's updates. I can let them know about other apps that I'm working on. Yeah, so far, it's, it's working really well. And actually, just um, a few minutes ago, the Mac App Store version of Vivid got through app review for test flight. So we're going to try to see if we can actually get it on the Mac App Store as well. Because I think a lot of people still prefer getting their apps on the Mac also through the Mac App Store. So yeah, it was in that moment, it was just something that would help us ship it quicker. And um, yeah, so far, it's been really nice. Is with Vivid, I assume, I guess that doesn't use any like private APIs or anything, does it? It, it used to do in the past, especially for... If you had like an external keyboard and we were intercepting the brightness key so that we could like do stuff with the brightness based on your actual keys without having to use other shortcuts. And we were doing some fancy stuff there with, with metal. Bit too complicated to get into now without showing code examples and stuff. But a lot of that stuff we don't need anymore. So okay. uh, we made sort of a stri- stripped down version now. So it should be, should be good. Awesome. So today I wanted to talk about two things. And we'll start off talking about your app, Posture Pal which uh, if people haven't taken a look, should definitely give it a try. It's awesome. It uses your AirPods essentially to make sure that your posture is 
correct? Did I say that right? Yeah, that's. I think that's a good good summary. So the, the AirPods Pro and also the AirPods Max and um, AirPods third generation, they all have these motion sensors in them. And they're mostly used initially by Apple for the spatial audio. So when you move around, the soundscape actually moves around with you. So if you look to, look to the right, you hear the instruments on the right closer to you. And since I think iOS 14, there's been a, an addition to the core motion API called CM Headphone Motion Manager which basically allows you to tap into that that stream of X, Y, and Z uh, rotation that you get from the AirPods. So you can do a lot of cool stuff with that for, for apps in general, like maybe just make your app move based on what you're doing. But I used to have this little thing you would plug in the back of your neck that would basically vibrate if your, your posture was not good. It cost 90 euros, you would have to stick it on your neck. It felt quite... I've seen the Facebook ads. As somebody who's quite yeah. familiar with posture issues and RSI, yes, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so I thought initially it was quite nice, but it just it never stuck with me because, yeah, you had to stick this thing. It, it was it always felt a bit, bit, bit off. And then I came across the API, I think somewhere last year, and I was talking with a friend about just posture in general. And then I think, oh, maybe I can make something with this. So I, I took some sample project from GitHub, and within like two minutes, I had a version that just said posture good, posture bad, by just looking at a certain value. And I was like, oh. Yeah, I guess there's something here. Let's see if I can make it into an app and then spend about a month trying to make it way too complicated with 3D characters and learning all these things that I didn't know yet. So I ended up not shipping that version. And then in March this year, I decided, okay, let me just start from scratch, try to make it as simple as possible. And then in about a month, me and uh, Victoria, who was my intern at the time, we uh, we basically made the first version um, that launched in April. And it was it was really nice. It actually, I found out it became the app of the month in China in April, which yeah, there's not a lot of months and there's a lot of people in China. So I was like, oh, that's that's quite quite a nice nice experience. By the way, localize your apps. It's worth it sometimes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> especially, especially for this one, because I learned a lot about Chinese and simplified Chinese versus traditional Chinese. And uh, they're very aware of that. So I, I had some strings in traditional Chinese instead of simplified and the other way around. And got quite some some remarks about that so there's a lot like a very large part of users in the world that just don't speak any language other than their own so i was luckily able that a lot of people from the community people that follow me on twitter helped me out with translating the app so i think right now it's 25 different languages or something because it's not a lot of strings but it really helps because the experience is it's much much easier for people that don't speak another language to to be able to use it so yeah that's awesome so the api basically gives you access to the motion of your AirPods, how did that, like, I guess you found that GitHub project that helped a lot, but I guess what's going on behind the scenes? It's actually not that that crazy. It's very similar to just the core motion if you would use it on your phone where you get the, the rotation access for your phone. But now you get it from the AirPods. So uh, the only thing is that the AirPods need to be connected and need to support it. So there's, there's stuff there, of course. But other than that, it's just a stream of up to 25 hertz a second. Depends on network connection, Bluetooth connection, whatever. But 25 is more than enough for for most use cases. So I guess if you get below 5 hertz or something, you would start getting maybe choppy things if you would do something based on the movement of your head. But yeah, you basically get a stream of data and then you can use that data to make certain determinations about, okay, what does this mean about the user's position compared to the last five minutes, last 10 minutes? Um, or are they just like slouching in general? And yeah, there's a lot of stuff you can do with that. Hi, everyone. I'm Dave Verwer, and you might know that I run the Swift Package Index along with Sven Schmidt. Thanks so much to Leo for inviting us to talk a little bit about the Package Index today. 
SwiftPackageIndex.com is the place to find Swift packages. We have over 5,000 packages indexed, so no matter what you're looking for, you'll find something that can help. But what we do is about more than just finding a library. We want to help you make better decisions about your dependencies. So for every package, you can see how well-maintained it is, what platforms and Swift versions it's compatible with, based on real-world build data, how many other dependencies it will bring in, and much more. We also host Doxy-based documentation for package authors. But I'd also like to talk to you about what it takes to keep a site like this going. Running the package index requires constant ongoing effort maintaining the site and supporting package authors. Our work is primarily funded by the Swift community. And since you're listening to a Swift podcast, you're part of that community. So if our site has helped you find a package, or if you want to support a community-run open source project, please go to swiftpackageindex.com, look for the pink heart, and join over a 100 other people who support our work through GitHub sponsors. Thanks so much, Leo, and we'll let you get back on with the show now. So how are you able to take that data in and update your UI accordingly? Like, are you using UIKit or SwiftUI? I've, since I started working on my own stuff in 2020, I've only done SwiftUI with every now and then, like, Little sites have to UI kit, but I try to prevent it as, as much as I can because last few weeks I've been doing some UI kit and I'm super rusty at it. And yeah, I prefer to just then make the UI a little bit different so that it's easier to make in Swift UI. But so what I did in PostureBell is basically there's this this mascot in the app form of a giraffe, like a, a drawing of oh, a right. giraffe. And thanks. And there's two two new ones now. So but initially it was just a giraffe, and basically the giraffe moves based on your movement. So it's sort of a a visual representation of your posture, but in initial phase, it was only like just your forward and backward posture, which gives it a very clear view of, okay, are you doing well or you're not doing well? The, the giraffe gets more sad over time. If you, if your posture is worse, uh, it gets better. If you're sitting up straight, uh, makes a little sound if, if you're, if you're wrong. So I try to take this, this stream of data that's quite complex, although it's just, it's just doubles, right? But in terms of it's, it's information about position of your airpods uh, and try to just narrow it down for a person like okay are you doing good are you doing bad or are you doing great and by basically trying to make it simple for people to take action upon that and then yeah so that's one axis of rotation and obviously you can also do stuff with is your neck straight are you tilting it in a certain way all these things really matter for posture especially if you're sitting for longer term so last few months i've been talking to a lot of physical therapist as well trying to understand more about it because i'm not an expert on posture at all which also is like you don't have to be an expert on whatever you're making as long as you don't claim to be that like the initial version of the app was just very basic it's like okay is your posture good or bad compared to these certain stats you could change the sensitivity for your own yeah whatever works for you but it already helps people in a way and then they give you feedback and then on that you can improve so i just started with keeping it very simple okay this is information i have let's try to make it binary or almost binary so that people can can yeah take action from there were there any issues technically with getting that data and displaying it on the screen without like over overdoing it or over you know taking up too much memory or too much cpu or battery yeah so in initially sometimes swift ui still i still don't know what i'm doing but initially every time there would be like a new data point would would arrive all my Swift UI views would re-render. So you can imagine 25 times a second, all the views in the app getting re-rendered. 90% CPU usage or something for a week there. So um, I had to do some refactoring there to, to, to make that observable object like 
separate and uh, have it be its own thing. And those are also the things that are quite difficult to to determine when you're just testing it on the simulator. Because if you're making something that requires an external thing, you always have to have that thing connected and always be using it and always be like moving your head. And it's quite tedious to test some of this stuff, especially the longer term stuff. If you want to test how the app works over 10 minutes or 20 minutes or an hour. So a lot of times for that, I would work with test data to, to just make the, the app work. But then obviously you need to also be using it with actual AirPods to see what, what data comes in. It's actually an interesting bug that I still haven't fully, fully solved because it's 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 more complicated than than I currently understand, is that the AirPods actually need to be connected to the phone and they need to be in a certain state. So it can't just be that they're connected in a semi-way that actively has to be like active. So you have to go to control center and click on them. And what happens sometimes is when your AirPods are connected to your iPad or your Mac as well, the AirPods get into this weird state where they're changing between like what device they're currently linked to, which gives gives me weird data and it's very hard to reproduce as well in a consistent way. So there's some of that stuff there because the the, the API itself is only available for iOS. So even though the you can import the score motion and you can you can add the function to your watchOS app or macOS app, it just won't give back any data. So something a lot of people would like is to use it on macOS, but that doesn't work. So th- there's some some user experience things there that could be improved. And but that's also it's just very difficult to to go through all these scenarios with someone opening the app when the AirPods are not connected, opening it, but they're connected, but also connected to an iPad or they're switching to an iPad and then they go back to the phone. And yeah, I, I, I haven't really found the perfect way to handle that, but it's definitely something that I'm trying to figure out. Is it all like Bluetooth under the scenes, essentially like communicating with the device? Yeah. So it, it's completely, I think opaque is the opposite of transparent, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I have no, I have no clue how it's getting, I'm just getting the data from the APIs, but I, right. I would assume it's just a, a good, it piggybacks on the, um, on the Bluetooth connection that, that's going on between the AirPods and the phone. But as a developer, you don't really have to do anything there in terms of setting up a Bluetooth connection or nice. that's, anything. That's a big yeah. relief. Yeah. What's been like the most difficult part. So it sounds like testing is a probably a real pain. I can mm. understand that. So Somebody who develops for the Apple Watch, I totally get that. <laughs> yeah. What else has been really difficult in building the app? I think what's been most difficult for me was to to determine, okay, what should I put in and what should I not put in the app? And so that's also what the first version of the app stranded, basically trying to do too many things or too ambitious. And once I started narrowing it down, it became so much easier. So just doing small updates every time, just doing... Sometimes I was doing like three updates a week, but just adding small things without making it too complex for me to, to oversee the total thing. Because especially at the start, there were a lot of different areas that I've never used before. So a lot of things I had to learn and by keeping it small, kept it easier for me. And I did a big update now for iOS 16, where I actually added core data, which was the first time I've ever used core data in an app. So there was some learnings there, still some learnings there, but yeah, trying to make sure that the experience works well even after adding more and more features. So I think now I've got sort of a foundation that I can more easily build on, but it took it took a while. So the first version released in April, then did 10 to 12 updates, I think in that month or the month and a half after that. And then over the summer kind of took it easy because I knew that I wanted to just add the new features to iOS 16 only. So right now I've got a branch in my app where it basically says, okay, iOS 15 users just get the old stuff. No core data, no advanced characters, whatever. And then, all the new stuff goes to the iOS 16 branch only so I can focus on, okay, I know I have all these things that I can can depend on. And um, 
yeah, that that, that kind of helped me to to keep it manageable and to actually ship it and to actually keep improving it. But I think other than that, uh, yeah, there were not a lot of things that are super super difficult. It was mostly just okay, keep it small, and then that way it's easy for me to understand what I need to do. I want to go back to the thing you were saying about testing with simulator. How did you create the test data, and then how did you allow your app run it back? Yeah, exactly. Because I know, like, I've I played around with like HealthKit. There's a few things you could do in HealthKit with with test data, and there's like you can fake location sometimes. But I'm not aware of how you do that with motion stuff. And and how did you go about making your app available to that? I guess. Yeah. So so what I do basically is when a user starts tracking, they create a session and that session has an array of stances. It stands basically every second when you're using the app, it, it checks, okay, what's your current position and then saves that. Once a second is, is more than enough to, to actually make a meaningful make a meaningful data set. So what I usually do is I have an array of, uh, of I have sample sessions, uh, great posture, bad posture, posture where it was good for a while, good then worse, then, then good again or then bad. And I basically just load that session in, and based on that, I do calculation to check, okay, is it going to display everything correctly? Is, is the score calculated in the right way? And I've thought about making something where I just make a stream, like, like play back a session so that it would actually go through it. But for my use cases, it hasn't really been super necessary because I can just, based on the, I just do certain calculations on the entire stances array, and based on that, I can highlight, okay, these were the areas where someone had an interruption or these were the areas where they were likely to go into bad posture. So I can just do that afterwards, basically, on the whole data set instead of having to do it in real time. Because it's quite consistent when you're actually using the AirPods. It's just, okay, you get these coordinates for your position. So I don't. I can very specifically test certain things there by just, okay, let me now put in the AirPods and do these, this specific motion. Okay, it triggers it, yes or no. Uh, but I can already do that afterwards without having to do sort of a stream of test data. Right. Right. Okay. What else do you want to talk about when it comes to the core motion API and posture pals? So the biggest request I got from day one was an Apple Watch app, but because the API is not available on Apple Watch, it was just never possible. And I always wanted to do something with it, but I never really figured out a way how. But now this week, I've actually been able to make a version. So probably, so you can't really see it now, but basically what it does is it, it, does all the tracking on your phone and then sends it over to watchOS as the like the, the messages stuff, the the watch connectivity API. Okay. So that that's been interesting now to figure out okay how how can I make it more useful for people because people don't want to look at their their phone to get updates. So you can get a sound notification or a vibration or a, a local notification or a watch watch feedback eventually as well. Right. Right. So, so I, there's a lot of stuff I can play around with there because it's not necessarily an app that goes very, very technical, or very complex. So it's much more for me about how can I make the experience nicer. So it's also fun to to play around with these things. Okay, maybe I can make a watch app for it that makes it more fun to use. Or um, yeah, there, obviously there's a lot I can do in terms of making the information that you get from the app more usable. Um, so if you're playing music on your phone and connect, like you could still use the app at the same time, right? Yeah, yeah. There are some scenarios where, where if you're going into certain audio modes in other apps, it will shut down the watch sensor connection, like the AirPods sensor connection. I've gotten some feedback about that, uh, but I have not really been able to to find one clear thing that's causing it. And also, I obviously don't have control over what other apps people are using, so 
Well, I'm wondering if it like shuts it down to save battery if you're not using like the head tracking in yeah, the so audio as, player. As, as, yeah, so as long as, from my understanding, as long as you're connected to the AirPods and like the active output for the for the phone, it works. Uh, and the nice thing is, it even works with one AirPod, so you can in theory just only wear one to do this tracking and that and save battery that way for your AirPods. Um, so because I think. That that movement is probably also used for other stuff in the OS that maybe we don't know about okay. besides the spatial audio. Because I think, for example, if you send an email uh, in the mail app, you hear this whoosh sound that that spatial audio. Right. So I think it always needs to be ready for that stuff. Okay. Because uh, I think in theory, if you send send the mail and then quickly look to the right, you you should hear the sound move. And yeah, I, I think other than that, it's probably just so low level that it, it doesn't have a lot of overhead for for the connection but i yeah I've, i don't know enough about that to say anything meaningful meaningful how's been your experience with watch connectivity so i had to figure out a bit of which apis were actually the ones to use now because there's obviously a lot of information available watch us that's outdated and not a lot of like good sample projects i downloaded some from apple and then they were not running based on the sample project and it turns out I had to add the parent app to the watch app or something and just a lot of stuff trial and error so far it's been really good actually once I got it to work so now it can just basically send through all the motion data in real time to the watch so it's just as uh, responsive as it is looking at your phone I have to check like okay how does that impact battery life but from what I've seen so far it should it shouldn't really matter because that connection is already there just piggybacking on that connection between the phone and the watch so for me it's now much more about okay how should a, a watch app app watch os app work and what what interaction should i have there and um i've, I've only made one watch os app and it was i think more than a year ago yeah it's changed a lot yeah exactly and especially with the, the sort of the new design patterns in, in watch os 9 and even 8 and I, I don't have an, a watch. I have a Series 4, I think, so I don't have the always-on display, so there's some stuff there that I need to need to better understand. So that's sort of my progress now with the watchOS, trying to figure out what should I be building here and what should I yeah, keep out of it. Hey, folks, I want to let you know about an app I've been working on, Bushel. If you're a Mac OS developer, this is the perfect app for you. Bushel is the macOS virtual machine app for developers who want rigorous and uncompromising testing in their app. Bushel is focused on giving you a complete native capabilities of the macOS operating system for all your testing requirements. Right now, I'm looking for folks who are interested in beta testing the app as it's currently in beta. Bushel is going to be a great app if you want to test out different localizations, different operating system going back all the way to Big Sur. I want to make sure your app still works. Let's say you have a bash script, for instance, and you want to test it out and you don't care if it breaks the Mac and you want to make sure you can revert back. You can do all that with this app. It does snapshots, different version testing, and all sorts of things that are perfect if you want to make sure that your app is working. I was always jealous of iOS developers having a simulator, so I made my own app to do the same thing with Bushel. So sign up now. Go to getbushel.app. Sign up with your email address and get a test flight invite today. Again, go to getbushel.app to sign up and get your test flight invite. Thank you so much for taking time to listen, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the program. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the Dynamic Island. You got a brand new iPhone 14 Pro? Pro or Pro Max? Uh, Just a Pro. 
Okay. I, um, yeah, the max is too big for me. Ideally, I think I would like an 14 mini pro or something. Yeah. Cause I mean, while I've got pretty big hands, so it's not a big thing for me, but uh, I, I wish my phone was just a smaller part of my life, I guess. Just, but with all, with keeping all the battery and the, and the good cameras and everything, so it's probably just not feasible in terms right, of right, right. Yeah. Phys- phys- physics. But um, yeah, so because I knew I wanted to do some stuff with the dynamic islands, and I, I guess I usually try to always get the the new the new pro model every year just mm-hmm. to be able to to use the new technologies there. So when the 12 Pro came out, I was super excited about the LiDAR sensor, trying to figure out, okay, what kind of things can I make with that? And it's very hard to to come up with ideas if you don't have the hardware to test it and you always have to rely on simulated performance or just, just to understand the technology a bit more. So for me this year was was mostly the, the Dynamic Island, which I'm working on some stuff with trying to figure out, okay, what 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 can you make with this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the always on display is nice as well, although I'm still in the phase where I'm like, oh, is my phone on? Oh, no, it's just the... the, the so where uh, it's still uh, yeah that'll take some getting used to what's been your biggest lesson with the dynamic island just trying to understand how people would actually use it so obviously you can to do updates in the background you would need to either use background tasks or uh, remote notifications and if you don't do any of those things it's kind of a static display of some information especially if the app cannot update it so like what kind of things do you want to see up there and, and that's also one of the things that you don't really know if you don't have a phone that actually has the feature so you don't see it in your day-to-day life. So for me, I, I started a sample project once the API came out and it's this GitHub repo that maybe we can link in the show notes or something where there's just examples of how you can recreate some of the things that Apple makes to become more familiar with it. And that helped me really, okay, first of all, understand the API because it's not a super complex API. It's, it's It works differently than widgets, so there's no timeline and everything. But to display stuff there, it's actually not that hard. And it's more about, okay, what kind of information does do my apps have that I would want to put in there? So obviously I would want to have something for posture pal where you can like see your, your current stance and maybe see your score in a quick overview without having to open the app. But in order to do that with a lot of data, you would have to update the dynamic island and that's not possible technically right now. So for me, it's mostly been trying to figure out, okay, what kind of information would make sense to have always visible in your, in your screen at the top? So you said you can update it with remote notifications, background tasks. How about, is it, do they plug any of the live activity stuff in there? And so the dynamic island is basically a live activity. Okay, okay. That's what I thought. The lock screen is is a variation of the dynamic island. Yeah. It's it's part of live activity, basically. Yeah, so you, yeah, yeah. You, when you make your live activity, you say, okay, this is my lock screen view. This is my trailing, my compact leading. So that's for for the ones on top. And then when you expand them, there's a different view for that. And then within that, there's different views. So it's basically all the same API. So if you want to make an app for the dynamic islands, you also have to do one for the lock screen. So it's not like you can just, okay, I'm just going to make a dynamic island stuff. And that's also nice because that means that people with older phones or with non-14 Pro phones will also get these experiences. And it also makes it, makes it like a much much wider appeal i think for users if they if they come across these things on their lock screen and then they want right. to have apps that especially with all was on screen yeah yeah definitely so the nice thing is when you see okay i don't have any music playing now but for example the, the live activities are always visible there in the bottom so there's a lot of stuff you can do there like okay what would i want to always see there that goes further than what the lock screen widgets can do because the lock screen widgets are obviously limited in space and where they go but it's basically gives you the opportunity to have um, a sort of a larger colorful, semi-interactive 
lock screen widget that you can tap on and do stuff with. And it, it opens the app each time. But yeah, it's just a lot of opportunities that, that are now available and that can really, I think, enhance a lot of apps and you can make a lot of new cool things around it. Yeah. So if you already have an app, what do you think is the first thing somebody should do if they want to support it and whether they should even support live activities in the dynamic island? I think any app that has something that's ongoing. So I see a lot of examples now of, of cooking apps where you follow a recipe and there's either a timer or something, or you want to see what step are you on right now. Those are things that are nice to see while you're doing it without having to keep the app open. Uh, obviously, apps for, for sports. There's a lot of interesting things there where you want to give information to the user, but you won't don't necessarily they don't necessarily need to open your full app because they just want to see, okay, what's the score between team one, team two, and maybe some extra information about the match. So I think you have anything that's ongoing and time sensitive, and that's also what the human interface guidelines for the dynamic island stuff now say is okay, yeah, that's where it's it's a very good use case. I think also a lot of apps might you open the app, you do a certain thing, and then you want to come back to that certain thing once or twice, maybe over the next few hours. So if you can give you a sort of a shortcut to get to that thing without having to find your app or swipe down, it's not, it's always, it's always there or always on your lock screen. Yeah. I think that, that that's also where it becomes interesting because once you use an app and then you close, you lock your phone and then you open your phone again because you want to open that app. If the information you're looking for is already on your lock screen, or an, an entryway into that specific screen, for example, on your app is already on your lock screen. It, that obviously makes it easier for people. It keeps your app top of mind, which can be nice as well because you want people to go to your app. It's kind of like a watch complication where it's just like always there and kind of keeping your app going. Yeah, exactly. And then you click on it. You always see some information and you know when you click it, you immediately go into your app. So yeah, I think there's just a lot of fun things to to try out there. Even if your app is not a, a, a default candidate of what what would make sense for the live activities because you can just come up okay like what kind of views do i have in my app uh okay let's see. let me just try what if i put that view in a live activity okay how would i use that what what situations would i use that for and it could be that there's just nothing in your app that makes sense to display there and that can also be perfectly fine as long as you don't get into a situation where someone does something in your app and then they expect the app to stay visible there at the top when they close it out for whatever reason. So I think people can also get a bit creative there with their use cases and um, try to figure out, okay, what do I, what, what can I add to the user's lock screen or to the, to the dynamic islands? Yeah. Yep. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we close out? Mm, I mean, we can talk about Mac OS stuff, of course, because I've been doing a lot that lately, but you've already had a lot of Mac OS stuff in the, the last few, few episodes. Is there anything? Let me see. Yeah, so right now, for example, with Gumroad for, for Vivid, this is not necessarily macOS related, but the license validation server is actually not reachable from China, which obviously is quite annoying if you have Chinese customers as well. Whose fault is that? Is that China or is that Gumroad? The Great Firewall? I think, yeah, there, there's some of that stuff. And I think I, I think it's very, I, I don't know enough about the, the, the network layers there, but I think it's... yeah. It's probably not something that can easily be solved by Gumroad well, of course uh, not. Yeah. externally. Yeah. So um, so that's just one of the things that this week I've been trying to figure out with Ben, like what, what will be a good alternative for that and how can we uh, how can we get around that kind of stuff? In, in reality, yeah, like, okay, there's only so much you can solve there and there's only so far you can go. And we're also not, we don't want to spend 40, 50, 80 hours working on license stuff. So maybe then the alternative is, okay, yeah, yeah, we just won't be able to support that kind of thing. But those are those are interesting challenges now that, that you don't necessarily have to deal with when you're on the App Store. 
So yeah, that, that, that's something we've been, we've been playing around with and actually trying to bring Vivid to iOS as well. So on macOS, we're doing... I've seen that, yeah. Is there a test flight for that? There, there is, and we just had a big update this week. So I'm not sure if you can see it here, but... Yeah, I mean, it looks bright. <laughs> Let's see if I can... It's a, yeah, so this is normally the max brightness. And yeah, you're, you're probably not going to see it properly here, but it's just been really <laughs> nice. And I'm not sure if we'll get approved for it, but it's just, just been a fun thing that we worked on the last two weeks here and there. And uh, yeah, yeah it's, just, it's just fun to make these things. That once you know one thing from one app that you've made, then say, okay, how el- what else can I do with this? And how else can I use it? And we got some questions from other developers asking, hey, can, can I maybe put that in my app so that, they can have a certain app in their or view in their app that they can make very bright. So it's like, oh yeah, I mean, we might we made it. We might as well just pass it on because we're just going to put this out for either cheap or free. I don't really know. Yeah, those are also just some nice things. And um, just now, so the Mac App Store version for Tesla got approved. So we're going to try to get it on the App Store, which I think would also be nice because I think that could solve our our Chinese license thing. Well, yeah, well, for sure. Because then, yeah. then we can, then we can just redirect people to to get it from the App Store itself. So yeah, there's just a lot of fun little challenges here and there, and um, yeah, keeping myself busy and uh, getting stuff ready for iOS 16.1 with the dynamic island stuff. Nice, nice. I think I just have one more question: How do you know that idea is worth pursuing or not? And how do you, you know, as opposed to like just being like, okay, yeah, this is a great API, but it's not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so um, I have this method that I made for myself called the two-two-two method. Where basically, whenever I whenever I want to make something new or I get an idea, I need to be able to make the very first version that works for me in two hours. So that can mean okay, I have to I have to either strip out features or ideas, but it just needs to be something that I can use. So it can be very ugly. So for example, for posture bell, the first version was just a screen that would say posture good, posture bad, and it would make a sound when your posture is bad. So you could keep, leave it on ugly only i would be able to use it it was like very hard coded then i spent maximum two days making a version i can share with friends so that that takes out the hard coded stuff so that it works for other people as well it can still be a bit ugly uh, and then i try to release it within two weeks so by by having these hard deadlines for myself it makes it very easy to say okay yeah i need to skip all these features because otherwise i won't be able to get it in two weeks but even before that so before those first two hours i need to already know in my head how am I going to build that first version, the two-hour version? Because by already thinking about it, you think, okay, I, I, I basically do these steps and write this code and make these views. And then once you get to the computer, all you have to do is just get it out of your head and on the computer. So you don't have to do the thinking anymore because it's already you've already done it over time to figure out, okay, is, is this worth doing? So a lot of ideas I've had, I'm just not able to do in two hours. So I just don't do them. So hopefully the API becomes easier next year or... I learned some new skills from another project so that now I can do it in two hours. So that takes away sort of that challenge or that, that well, not challenge, but it, it takes away the, um, the worry of, okay, is it going to be worth my investment? Because I know all these ideas are going to be small. And by releasing them quickly, like worst case, I don't release them, but then I still have this knowledge from making this prototype. So I have a lot of projects I've never like shipped, but I often go back to them to copy some code from them for another project to make the two hours easier for a new project because I already did the work somewhere else. And I think now I'm at the point where I have so many different things out that I don't really care too much if each of them does great or does super well. So I there's not a hard like deadline for me or not not a hard like cutoff point like ah oh, it's not doing good enough. 
But I, th- I think it's mostly just make something that you want to use yourself. And then worst case, you're the only person that uses it. And then it's already valuable. Because otherwise, you're always making something for someone that you don't really know. And then it's very hard as well to iterate on it and to know what you need to need to be working on. So that's that's kind of my approach. And I, I did a talk about that recently. So um, that, that video just came out. So um, it should be on my Twitter and stuff as well if people want to see some more information. Of the, for ex- I gave examples of the last five projects and how I use that method to say, okay, yeah, this is something I want to work on. I'm definitely going to check that out because I think one of my vices is always starting something new. And yeah, I like that. Two, two, two. I don't know about two, two hours seems like not enough for me, but because my ideas are always overly complicated, but uh, do you, do you use Swift UI or mostly UI kit and app kit stuff? Uh, Swift UI. All OS, okay, so, watch, iOS, Mac. Yeah. Yes. So I think that made so much stuff easier because the two hours, if you don't worry about design and stuff, just use all the basic components. That already takes away a lot of thinking because you don't have to think, okay, how is it going to look? And and then it's just, okay, what's this super big idea that you have? Okay, what's the core of that? And then maybe what's the core of that even? Because that first two hours doesn't have to solve the entire problem. That's what the two weeks are for, basically. But it's it should be like, okay, is this something that could technically work? Is there something here? And then you can go from there. But worst case, you have something that you made that works that you can then stew on. And maybe five months later, you pick it back up again. But yeah, obviously... The, that takes some, I'm not sure if it's a skill, but it takes some something in your head where you can say, okay, I'm just going to do this part and still be okay with it. Because I've had times where I worked on a project for six months and got stuck. Yeah, I just got stuck on the 90% after six months and never shipped it. Whereas, yeah, it's better just to have something that you can either ship either to yourself or to some friends or whatever than to uh, just keep working on it and continue on and on and on. Well, Jordi, thank you so much for coming on. This has been fantastic. I'm glad we could do it. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for the invite. Where can people find you online? So I'm mostly active on Twitter, uh, at Jordi Bruin, J-O-R-D-I-B-R-U-I-N. So yeah, I think that's probably the, the easiest way for people to reach me. My DMs are open if people want to ask questions or just get feedback on something. Super happy to help. So Thank you. Thank you so much. People can find yeah, me on Twitter at LeoGTN. My company is Bright Digit. Take some time to post a review on whatever podcast listener you're using. And if you're watching this, like and subscribe on YouTube, please. Thank you again. And I look forward to talking to you again. Bye, everyone. Yeah, like a season. <laughs>